Tonight we're continuing our series on the men of Matthew. We just started last week, and uh, we last week we looked at King Herod. We, we actually didn't just look at one King Herod. If you'll recall, we looked at several, and we learned a lot of the history behind that. Well, today, uh, as we continue to look at these different men from the book of Matthew, and we look at their lives, and we look at their, their successes, their, their failures, all of these things. We see what we can learn from them. And tonight, we're going to be looking at four fishermen. And, the, and these four fishermen are introduced in Matthew chapter 4. So Matthew chapter 4, we're going to pick it up in verse 18. And this is what it says. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw, speaking of Jesus, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he said to two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother, in the, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they, they left the boat and their father and followed him. I want you to imagine... Two women standing against the crude doorway of a fisherman's house in a tiny Middle Eastern village called Capernaum, near to the Decapolis and near to Bethsaida. And these women, dressed like the wives of the hum humble fishermen around them, reclined in the doorway, sharing a few moments of gossip at the end of a tedious day of hard work. They watch the children playing on the seacoast. They see the boats preparing to launch out for a night of, of fishing. And from out of the tumbling, scrambling, arguing, playing lot of children breaks four little boys. Just wild-eyed and wild-haired little ragamuffin boys. And they come away from the others. And two of them are, are in a wild argument. I can run faster than you. I can run faster than anybody in this town. I can run faster than you. Another one answers him, I can run faster than you. You can't beat me. All right, let's race. And finally uh, uh, comes, comes the shout, Andrew, you start the race. We both trust you. One of the little boys steps apart from the other three, raises his hand, and he says, when I say go, go. Run to the tree and back. The first one back here wins. Well, the bigger boy toes the mark, eyes eager, arms and, and muscles flexed. The smaller of the two stands almost casually at the starting line, confidence just pulsing throughout his ease muscles. Go, shouts Andrew, and the two boys start running. Some are yelling, come on, Simon, come on, Simon, beat the little squirt. However, the smaller children, are, they all seem to be cheering for John. Come on, John, come on, John, you can do it. And they run neck and neck for a while, they they come to the tree and they tag it. And then with a burst of last laughter, the little John dashes ahead of the bigger boy as if he'd been holding in his speed the entire time, uh, waiting only to hum humiliate the larger boy at the, at the finish line. However, just short of the finish line, Simon reaches out and grabs the back of John's robe and throws him to the ground. And he dashes uh, uh, across the finish line ahead of him, pounding his chest, shouting, I win, I win, I win. John jumps to his feet, yelling, you cheated. 
Andrew jumps between them to try to separate them. A, a smaller boy, James, stands by the, to, to the side as if he had nothing to do with any of this. And the two mothers just shake their heads and say, what will ever become of this lot? Now, suppose in that imaginary scenario, suppose you could step right into the midst of that and walk right in front of those two women and say, ladies... I assure you in the name of God Almighty that in less than 20 years, your boys are going to walk through the most dramatic events in all of human history. And that 2,000 years from now, their names will be better known in many circles than that of Caesar Augustus or Herod the Great. Well, don't you know that those two ladies would have laughed at you and said, are you mad? Now suppose 20 years later, at a low moment, two men, Peter and John, sit at a low table with a flickering lamp filled with doubt, insecurity, dejection, rejection, remorse, feelings of failure, fear. And they discuss in low tones the events that have just happened. Two others join them, James and Andrew, and they talk and share together. Remember how we used to run foot races when we were children? Remember our carefree childhood? Oh, I wish that we were still fishing on the deck of our father's little boats. Surely we have wasted our lives on a fool's errand. We followed this rabbi and now he's dead and gone. What will become of us? If you could have walked into that room just at that moment, and said to those four young fishermen, in 2,000 years, your names will be known around the world. In 2,000 years, you will be numbered among the, the 1,000 or so most famous human beings who have ever lived. Your lives and your ministries are going to affect thousands. And two of you are going to write books that will sell in the multiplied millions of copies. Don't you know that if... They were capable of laughing at anything in that dismal moment. They would have laughed at you. Such is the story of Peter and his brother Andrew, John and his elder brother James. Now, let's look at this passage of scripture that we've just read. And it will immediately tell us several things that are, are uh, of importance as we, as we study these four men. I, I know that perhaps... You, you may have, in your lifetime, you may have studied all the apostles. Uh, let, there, there, there's some wonderful books about the apostles that are available. Nevertheless, let's just see if there aren't some new and wonderful things that will help us with, in our walk with God today. The first thing that I want to point out is, very briefly, is that, and it's a, very, it's a technical matter, but I think it's of importance to us. Would you please notice in verse 18, it says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee... He, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother, and Andrew, his brother. Now just leave that and look at verse 21. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. Now, please note that it mentions Peter and his brother, Andrew, and James and his brother, John. Now, in Jewish families, the elder brother uh, will always be mentioned first. Furthermore, the firstborn son will, will typically be called the son of his father. For example, you may have heard of Simon Bar-Jonah. That means Simon, son of Jonah. Uh, so you have Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, and his brother Andrew. 
And the subsequent sons after the firstborn were very seldom called by son of their father, son of whatever their father's name was. They would be typically known as the brother of their elder sibling. However, the first son would be known as the son of the father. Therefore, we, we immediately know as we read this that Peter is older than Andrew and James is older than John's. They are two sets of brothers who know each other, work together. Their families are friends. Their, their, their uh, fathers are friends. They live together in a small village on the shore of the Sea of Galilee or, or what would have been known at the time as the Lake of Tiberias. So let's look at these four men themselves. Of course, the, the most famous, almost infinitely more famous than the other three is Peter, also known as Simon Peter. Now, Peter, I love Peter. He's a very interesting character. He is a complex and difficult to understand personality. He was hasty. He was headstrong. He often spoke impertinently, yet at the same time, he was tenderhearted and quick to repent. He was bold. He was anointed by God for a mission that was grander than, than his age. And he himself was one of those larger than life people that seems to just fill up a room when he comes in. He was a natural leader that seemed to take command of every situation. Part of that was probably his large stature and great physical strength. However, there's more than that, isn't there? Natural born leaders exude a, a, a natural innate quality that, which causes other people to listen and to follow them. Now, I want you to understand this natural leadership ability is both for good and for bad. Uh, on the one hand, you have somebody like Abraham Lincoln. His heritage, his background, his traditions, his education, nothing would speak of a man who was going to wind up becoming probably the single most famous president of the, uh, president of the United States ever, probably even including George Washington himself. Yet, yet he does. That's what he becomes. Even from his childhood, you, as you read the stories and accounts of Lincoln, one has the sense that there is something natural. It's not cultivated, but something with which he was born, something that was part of him it's in his genes, as it were, that just makes him a leader. You see the same thing in John Wesley who becomes the predominant reality of his generation, of his nation, of, of the Western world, one of, one of the five most important personalities in the world of Christianity. So that's for the good. But on the other hand, one also sees those kinds of qualities of natural leadership that might be used for evil. For example, someone like Nate Turner, who looses a bloodbath of re revolution and rebellion, albeit with the best intentions, but becomes a leader of brutality and, and it ends with his own death. Or you can see it in somebody like Jesse James, who is the younger brother of Frank James, yet assumes uh, natural leadership over a gang of criminals, all of whom are older, more experienced, more disciplined, more orderly than he. But there is something about Jesse. There's something about Jesse himself that seems to say that when Jesse speaks, it's not just another person's opinion, but this is the leader. Peter was one of these, one of these kind of men. In Peter, though, we see some great contradictions in the events of his life. I mean, think about this. Simon Peter is the one who walked on water, but he's also the one who sank. 
Simon Peter is the one who, when all the other apostles had been debating, debating who Jesus was in private, when, when Jesus pressed for an answer, whom do men say that I am? Only Peter responded, I know who you are. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And yet, just a few verses later, he is rebuked by Jesus. I want you to look at Luke 22, verse 31, starting there. I want you to watch how his boldness uh, and, and his take charge, impetuous, headlong, hasty, decisive personality gets him in trouble. Luke 22, 31. Simon, Simon, Jesus is talking. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I mean, that's Peter. He's impetuous. He's like, no way, Jesus. I'll die with you. And then verse 34, Jesus said, and you can almost hear, you can, I can almost hear the voice of Jesus filled with compassion and sorrow as he says, I tell you, Peter, here's the truth, Peter. The rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. What, what, what a stern rebuke from God, from Jesus. It is he then, despite all of his avowals of love and self-denial and willingness to die, it is he who denies Jesus. Yet, at the same time, it is also he that following the day of Pentecost becomes the natural leader of the church. Because from that moment on, it's no, really, no longer really the apostles, it's Peter and the eleven. It is he who in boldness and authority and under the anointing and unction of God speaks the word of healing to a crippled man at the gate called beautiful. It is he who testifies before the Sanhedrin. It is he who rebukes Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8 uh, in the city of Samaria. It is he who received the vision of the, on the rooftop of Joppa and goes to the household of Cornelius and preaches the gospel and finds a great revival among the Gentiles. It is he who defends ministry to the Gentiles based on conversion by faith through grace and not on the law. And then yet after all of that, in Galatians chapter 2, the last mention of Simon Peter by name in the entire New Testament, it is a dismal, abysmal failure. What happened was that the church in Antioch, there, there's a great revival, a move of, of the Lord among the Gentiles. And Simon Peter goes there with this new so-called apostle named Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And, and there with Barnabas and Silas and some of the other prophets at the church, there's this great move of God among these Gentiles. And Simon Peter just mixes in with all the others. Everything is fine. He's, he's caught up with, in the joy and the enthusiasm of the moment. I mean, it is so like Simon Peter, isn't it? Everything is great. He's not concerned about the law. He remembers the vision on the rooftop in Joppa. He remembers the great outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the household of Cornelius. He's excited at the miracles that are happening. He preaches. He teaches. He sits with the Gentiles. He eats with the Gentiles until, until a delegation arrives from Jerusalem. And they draw Simon Peter aside and, and say, well... Well, you're, you're not going to sit at the table with those Gentiles. You're, you're going to eat the way they eat. You, you, haven't, you haven't 
washed your hands ceremonially. You haven't gone through all the prayers that our fathers taught us. Is this what it means to be in the ministry? We're going back to Jerusalem. And Peter's like, wait, 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 he says. We'll set up a table to the side just for the Jews. And then Peter withdraws himself from the Gentiles and eats at the table only with the Jews. And in his last public appearance in the New Testament, the great Simon Peter is rebuked publicly by the young upstart named Paul the Apostle. I mean, what a complicated and contradictory, contradictory man. A man of tremendous qualities and strength and character, yet a man who was capable of massive failure. I believe that Peter is one of those personalities that uh, almost larger than life is in a sense imprisoned by the greatness of his own life. Another one of those is David, one of my favorite Bible characters. When David was right with God, he was called a man after God's own heart. However, when David sinned, whoa, it was, he, if he sinned, it was a bodacious sin. That's the first time I've ever used that preaching. I'm going to, I'm going to remember, I'm going to mark this day down, the day Pastor Dave used bodacious. I mean, David didn't just stoop to petty little sins like lying or jealousy or gossip. I mean, he trotted out adultery and murder. We're dealing with this massive contradiction. And David is another one of these contradictory human beings. John Wesley, a more modern example, he was, he was like that. John Wesley, uh, with whom we associate these wonderful, magnificent moves of God. I don't know if you've, if you've ever read about John Wesley and the revivals that God used him to bring about, you should read that sometime. But we associate him with these powerful moves of God, shaking an entire nation in England, uh, leaping the ocean and causing a revival on the American frontier, going into Europe, volumes of books of theology that he wrote, sermons uh, that, that he preached that still to this, this day enjoy the anointing of God. And yet his marriage was just an absolute failure. It was such an absolute failure that one of his fellow preachers records in his diary of a, of a moment when he arrived at John Wesley's house on a night when John Wesley and his wife were having an argument. And he pushed the door open a little bit and peeked inside. And Mrs. Wesley was dragging the famous preacher across the room by his hair. Even by the time of her death, they were so estranged that the great John Wesley did not even attend his own wife's funeral. So you see these men of great leadership, but also great contradictions. And what does this tell us then about some of these great, great men? Well, it is not to say that, that their celebrity in the kingdom of God excuses their frailties. Far from it. That's not what I'm leading to. What I am saying is that people who are gifted in such a way have an even greater calling, have an even greater responsibility and an infinitely greater necessity than most of us to press in very close to the throne of God and to know all that God has for them. Those who have the greatest capacity for good in the kingdom also have the greatest capacity for failure. And I would say even beyond that, they also even have the greatest capacity for out-and-out -out evil. Think right now of people that, that you know that you know of whom you consider to be the evilest people of any generation. For example, Adolf Hitler, maybe Charles Manson, some mass murderer, Stalin, any, anyone like that. Pol Pot is another one. Name whomever you want to name. 
I believe, my friends, that, that those same people were captured, motivated, in, in, inhabited, possessed, whatever, inspired by demonic spirits because they were the very personalities in their generations that had the greatest capacity for good in the kingdom. Think of this, what, what might have happened if a pitiful, lonely, emotionally disturbed, uh, neurotic, demonized little boy in the back alleys of Austria, if instead of, of falling to hatred and fear and violence and racial prejudice and anti-Semitic demonic nightmares, if he had found the loving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and been delivered uh, and found the emotional inner healing of God and been baptized in the Holy Spirit, if that had happened, then, then there might have been a revival in, in, the, in Depression Germany in the 1930s through the preaching of a young boy named Adolf Schickelgruber. You don't know that name because he changed his name. Instead, he became a demonic egomaniac who changed his name to Adolf Hitler and brought a holocaust. What if he had been captured by Christ? It might have been different. It might have been. And I believe that Simon Peter is one of these men uh, in whom the contradictions of his character, we, we can never, ever fully, really understand. But, but we identify those like him in generation after generation after generation. We, we've seen great preachers who anointed of God, almost beyond anything we, we've ever seen. I've been in the room with, with these great men of God, and I've seen them preach. And there were, there were times when I just wanted to go forward and try to touch them just to see if the power of that anointing might rub off on me a little bit, you know. However, we've seen that, but we've also seen those very kind of men fall like lightning from heaven. I've seen the contradictions and the inabilities to bring their flesh before the cross. And I've seen that de destroy men when they had the capacity to change their generation for God. Thank God that Simon Peter brought his contradictions and weaknesses, his hastiness, his unwillingness to be at peace, and his, his impertinence, his emotionalism, his tender-hearted, easy to repent, easy to sin again, boldness, weakness, strength, powerlessness, all of that. He brought all of it before the Lord Jesus Christ and submitted to, submitted to him in mournful re re repentance and allowed him to baptize him in the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And in, in doing so, Simon Peter did indeed fulfill more of the greatness of his life than most of these massive contradictory figures ever really did. For, for all of his weakness, for all of his contradictions, for all of his mistakes. And, and, you know, we can, because he's in Scripture, we can identify the mistakes in Simon Peter's life. And he becomes an easy target, doesn't he? One might say, oh, Simon Peter, what happened to your faith? You were walking on water. You were looking at Jesus. It was the most miraculous moment in your life. And, and, and you what? You, you slip beneath the waves? Oh, you fool. He might, spitting the water from his mouth and climbing back over the gunnels of the boat, he might respond to you, yeah, but I walked on water for a minute. Have you? We might say, oh, Peter, why in the world did you deny him there in the courtyard of Caiaphas? Why didn't you speak right up and say, yes, I know him. Yes, he's my Lord. Yes, he's my Savior. Nail me up too. Take me too. And how could you fail him, Peter? I think Peter might say, I, I, I don't know. 
I, I, I just don't know why in this, in this great, big, massive, strong body, I don't know why I would feel fear in the face of a little maid in a lonely, darkened courtyard. I don't, I don't know. But I, I do know this. Only a, a, a few days later, I looked the Sanhedrin in the eye and said, this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead and testified that he is both Christ and Lord and will come again to judge you on that day. Repent, therefore, and believe that you might be saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. Have you? Peter brought his contradictions and his weaknesses before the cross and he found the anointing of God in a magnificent way. Now, his brother, Andrew, younger than he, had a much calmer spirit, caring, spiritual. He was, he was attractive, if not personal, personally charismatic. And I don't use the word charismatic in the modern theological sense. I'm just talking about a personal charisma. Somebody who, you know, people like that, they just have this natural charisma about them. Andrew may not have been one of those people that walked into a room and lit it up. You know, he, wasn't, he may not have been one of those people that was the life of the party like Peter. However, Andrew was the type of person to whom individuals were drawn. Andrew's sense of leadership was not so much in a group, but one-on-one. -on -one. Um, I love Andrew. I do. In fact, if we'd had, if we'd had boys instead of girls, I wanted to name one of, if I ever had a boy, I wanted to name him Andrew. Because one of the things you see about Andrew is that just about every time he's mentioned, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. But it was one-on-one, -on -one, not in a group. Andrew if, Andrew, if you remember, he was the one who identified Jesus first and brought Peter. Andrew was the one to whom the boy with the fishes and the, and the loaves came. He handed them over to Andrew, who handed them over to Jesus, who handed them over to feed the 5,000. It was Andrew to whom Philip came with the Greeks. You remember the Greeks, they came and said, Sir, we would see Jesus. And, and Philip said, I don't know what to do. Andrew, these guys want to see Jesus. I love Andrew. He said, I tell you what, here's what we do. How about we let them see Jesus? So they, the Greeks came to Philip and Philip came to Andrew and Andrew, Andrew found an audience with Jesus himself. He somehow or another seemed to have that calm spirit, that tranquil character about him to which people in need were drawn on, in a one-on-one uh, -on -one basis. Then we have these other two brothers, James and John. Now John is infinitely more famous than James. John was, was deeply committed, trustworthy, and dependable. Now, understand, this is not the James who wrote the book of James. It's a different James. The person who wrote the book of James was the half-brother of Jesus. This is the disciple of Jesus. So it gets confusing when you have uh, names that are the same. But, but John, it, it was he whom Jesus commissioned to prepare the Passover meal. It was he, and think of how trustworthy a man would have, would have to be for this. It was he to whom Jesus committed the care of his mother from the cross. The same John, the, 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 this man of deep spiritual relationship with Jesus in his own gospel, he hardly ever referred to himself by name, but he called himself the apostle whom Jesus loved. It was he who reclined on the breast of Jesus. It, it was he who considered himself the very closest to, to Jesus of all. He was an anointed and powerful man of God and he was used in miraculous ways. He, he was the leader, uh, uh, without a doubt, he was the leader of his younger brother, James. 
He was a man of deep spirituality, uh, perhaps even mysticism. So not only was he trusted by Jesus with the preparation of the Passover meal and the care of his mother, but we also know as we just finished our series of of, uh, lessons out of the book of Revelation, we know that he was trusted by God with the greatest revelations that have ever been given to any man in history. Now James, his his elder brother, uh, was second fiddle to his younger brother. He was second fiddle to his younger brother. Now that tells you something about him already, doesn't it? You know, there, there were two men in Georgia who were brothers. They were Freddie and Joe Frank Harris. Now, Joe Frank Harris was the governor of the state of Georgia for eight years. And a friend once was talking, a friend of Freddie's was talking to him one time, and he said, it can't be easy being the brother of Joe Frank Harris. It can't be easy to walk into a room full of people and to see everybody go to your brother. Oh, Joe Frank Harris is here. Ladies and gentlemen, the governor of the state of Georgia. It can't be easy for your brother to be the center of attention all the time while you're only known as the brother of Joe. uh, You're not known as Freddie Harris. You're known as the brother of Joe Frank Harris. Well, Freddie just stared at his friend. He looked at him like he was speaking a foreign language and he said... You know, it's not like that. He said, I, I know what you're saying, but it's just, it's just not like that. And his friend said, well, what is it like? He said, that's Joe Frank's life. He said, I, I wouldn't be governor of this state if you paid me $10 million. I, he said, I'm thrilled for Joe Frank. I'm just as thrilled for him as anybody could be, but, but I feel not one ounce of competition envy, jealousy, or anything else. He said, I'm absolutely thrilled for Joe Frank. And he said, I just like selling concrete for a living. You know, that tells me something about a man. That tells me he is humble. Tells me that he delights in the success of others. And we can see that in James. He had had uh, some deep sense of of spirituality. He he, he also was uh, invited onto the Mount of Transfiguration with John, his brother, and with Peter. And we we know that he caused some trouble for Satan because Satan inspired Herod to kill him. He was the first martyr of the church. We we know that he was faithful until the end. He did not deny Jesus even with a sword's point uh, resting on his breast. We we know that that like Andrew, he was a brother to fame and therefore a man of humility. And he was chosen for martyrdom in Acts chapter 12. By the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but his name, James, is, a, is the English derivative of the Hebrew name Jacob. So these four men, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, here they are. What, though, can we learn from their lives as a group? What can we learn from the, the fact of them, just their, their life? Well, the first thing is this. I, I, I don't know why, but for some reason, out of all the generations of men who have ever lived, out of all of the massive cities that have ever been, out of all the great intellects that have ever existed, out of all the magnificent family dynasties that have ever promulgated across the face of the earth, why would God choose two sets of brothers from a tiny, isolated village that stinks of fish 24 hours a day? 
And, and trust me, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you've ever been to a, a pier where they do a lot of fishing. I, we used to like to go to, in San Francisco, when we lived in Reno, we'd go to San Francisco and go over to Pier 39 and walk around down there. But you get down there where all the fish are, where they're, they're uh, pulling them up out of the water. I'm telling you, it stinks. Why would God choose these two sets of brothers from this tiny isolated village that stinks of fish 24 hours a day? Well, I think that there is some way in which God is trying to get a message across to us one more time in one more way. He does it so many other times and so many other ways and so many other places where he's trying to say to us, I am not about celebrities. I am about real, common, ordinary folk. I'm about people. The, the man of the soil, the guy, guy who hauls the nets in all night long when his back is screaming of pain, the, the carpenter who works with the wood and shapes something new. I'm, I'm about men of reality. I, I'm not about ideas or concepts. I'm about reality, real people. Now, it thrills me that the heart of the Jesus event, the heart of the, of the Christ story is about men of no great learning, no great intellect, no famous background, no families that are of importance, no great works, no great ideas, no marvelous education, but just real, common, ordinary people. Now, that may not be important or encouraging to anybody else in this room, but I'm telling you, that helps me plenty. It says to me, I don't have to be good enough or smart enough or clever enough or educated enough or thankfully handsome enough, or talented enough, or again thankfully tall enough, or any other thing to merit a visitation from God. Jesus is not repulsed by my common, ordinary humanity. My common, ordinary humanity is not any more common or any more ordinary than Peter and Andrew and James and John. Second thing it teaches me is this. There is a historical reality that I'm going to share with you now. God often seems to isolate small groups of people and then he works massive works in them and then through them. Imagine a small prayer meeting in Oxford College. In a cold, drafty, dimly lit upper room with a small handful of dedicated however, completely lost college boys who, who, who love God and want to know about God and want to serve God, yet not one of them is born again, who, who clutch their ragged little Bibles in their hands and study the Word of God and pray diligently, arrogantly calling themselves the Oxford Holy Club. I, I mean, the religious nerds, that's what they are. They, 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 they are not athletes. They're not particularly intelligent. They're not destined for success by, when you look at their lives. They, they have no high ambitions. They just want to be godly. In fact, they said they want to be so godly that everybody on the campus despises them. Isn't that funny? However, what if somebody should walk into their prayer meeting and say, out of this room, God is going to raise up two preachers that are going to be among the most famous preachers that are ever going to walk the face of this earth. And there's also a man here who's going to write hymns that will be sung for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in thousands of languages. 
I, I don't believe that you had been able to convince any of them. Perhaps several of them might have looked up and said, from, from this table? From this table? Which of us are going to become famous? I mean, my name is John Wesley, and this is my brother Charles. And that man over there is George Whitfield, but who, who is going to become famous among us? Little groups of people that seem to cluster sort of on the periphery of history, and God just seems to invade them in a mighty way. Out of that same place, little tiny uh, uh, pockets of spiritual dynamics seem to be created and plunge people into great events and moments. And in, 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 in a little out-of-the-way, run-down church that's been used as a stable for the past 10 years in 1906 in a slum area of Los Angeles, a white man named Charles Parham, who is a Methodist preacher from Kansas, and a black man named William J. Seymour come and they hold a revival. In the, and, and as they do that, the Azusa Street mission becomes a burst, a flame that flows worldwide. We are in this room today because of those, those, because those two unlikely characters were, were in, the, in the most unlikely place. I mean, listen, if you were God and, you're, and you say, I want to start a revival that's going to go on for years and years and years and years and years that will birth entire denominations and give birth to thousands of churches worldwide, that, that it's going to be the most important theological historical reality for the next 100 years, would you choose a stable in Los Angeles? I, I mean, name a city in the world. Any city, Bombay, New Delhi, uh, you know, Barcelona, anything, anywhere, but not Los Angeles. And if you wanted to, would you use a black man with no education who can hardly read the Bible in his hand and a white Methodist preacher from Kansas? No. Nevertheless, God seems to have this way of gathering these little pockets of humanity, the seemingly unimportant people, gathering them close together and bringing out of them massive waves of greatness. Peter and John before the Sanhedrin were called ignorant and unlearned. Yet they wrote 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, the book of Revelation and the gospel of John. All I can say is if they were ignorant and unlearned, maybe, maybe we need a baptism of ignorance. <laughs> What's the next thing that God teaches us about these men? What is this? The church is about diverse personalities with widely disparate gifts blended together for God to use them in a sense of unity for the perfection of the character of the church, the propagation of the gospel, and the glory of God himself. In other words, let me put it this way. We don't all have to be alike. Can you say praise the Lord? We don't all have to be like Simon Peter. We're not all going to be like Andrew or James or John or Bartholomew or Matthew or any of the rest of them. You know, I remember when I was filled with the Holy Spirit and called in ministry at a Southern Missouri youth camp. I was so excited and so on fire for God. I was just ready to start preaching. And in fact, I remember the first sermon I ever preached um, I got it from a book by Billy Graham is where it came from and basically preached the whole book right there. Another friend of mine, the first time he preached, he went from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to the end of Revelation in 10 minutes. Now that's a miracle right there. 
But anyway, I started watching great preachers of the, of the day and, you know, trying to learn from them. But here's the problem, especially when you're young and you're trying to figure out who you are. You start watching them and instead of trying to actually learn from them and how they do what they do or what are they doing, you start trying to be them. So one of my favorites at the time was Jimmy Swaggart. I liked his preaching so much, I tried to be Jimmy Swaggart. I mean, I started throwing off my coat at just the right moment in the message. You know, because that's where the anointing comes from. It's like, ah, get saved now, you know. You know, I, I paced back and forth like Jimmy Swaggart, you know. I, just, I, I, was, I was going to be Jim, Jimmy Swaggart, but here's the problem. I couldn't be Jimmy Swaggart. I tried it. God knows I tried it. It didn't work for me. And frankly, I'm not sure it worked for Jimmy Swaggart either. <laughs> I, just, I decided that I couldn't be Jimmy Swaggart. And I figured out I couldn't be Billy Graham. I just couldn't do it. So I finally broke before the Lord and said, oh, God, what do you want me to be? And you know what he said? He said, not much. <laughs> He said, I don't have very much for you, son. He said, if you'll just be Dave Hoskins, that's about all you can handle. The, the, the church is about people who have experienced setbacks, and failures, their retreads and remakes, who have known the rebuke of God, suffered through their misconceptions and their misunderstandings and their disasters who have sunk beneath the waves and been dragged back into the boat who have denied Jesus and known grace afterwards. The church is about men who in the natural order can't tolerate each other but in the supernatural order they find the anointing of God to accomplish great things and find a great destiny. There are men who have been broken, dashed to pieces on the rocks of their own ego, washed up on the shore of eternal grace who had the breath of Almighty God breathed into their nostrils to make them living souls again. Men who, who write about being steadfast and unyielding who them, they themselves have yielded. Uh, men who write about the special relationship of God with His people who say we are royalty, a chosen generation, a people belonging to God who themselves are nothing more than fishermen. The church is about people who say we are partakers of the divine nature when they themselves know that their own nature is still under construction up until the moment of their death. The church is about people who say, I have seen the Lord. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. The church is about people who have endured the outrages of their own humanity, who, who have sensed their own magnificent capacity for failure, and yet somehow or another, through the blood and the name and the priesthood and the grace and the Spirit of God, they have allowed God to shape them in an image of usefulness. Let me close with this. There was a tour bus one time full of rowdy, loud-talking loud Americans. I know that's hard to believe, but sometimes we're that way. And this bus just rambled across northern Scotland some years ago, this tour bus. And they were stopping at all the famous sites, looking at all the great castles, prowling through all the cemeteries, reading all the markers and visiting all the pubs. Finally, they came to a tiny little village and the bus driver pulled over and, uh, to the side of the road and, and, and he said, lunch, one hour. And one of the tourists called out before they got off the bus. They said, were any famous men born in this village? 
And this driver had had it with all these Americans and he was frustrated and he finally said, no, only babies. <laughs> Brethren, the greatest point of the lives of Peter, James, Andrew, and, and John is this. There are no famous men born anywhere. Not in that village, nor in any other, nor in the greatest metropolitan area of the world. There are no famous people born anywhere. There are no overnight successes, not in the natural order and certainly not in the supernatural order. Let me just close by asking you this. Do you have a child in whom you can see the spark of, of almost divine greatness? To the point where you feel the responsibility and the weight in raising this child? Do you have a child that is just absolutely driving you loony? Anybody here have a kid that you just wonder where this kid came from? You know, you know did, did this child fall off the back of a wagon full of gypsies or what? Does this child have any relationship with any of us? Does anybody have any any? Uh, anything like that? Anybody have this? Where did this kid come from? Anybody here have a child that is just so good, so kind, so precious, so sweet that you marvel that God has visited your family with this precious imitation of Jesus? And you say, what have I ever done? Here I am in my sin and lying and deception and greed and envy and egotism. And I've been given this precious child of God in my house. Anybody have a child that is so curious and so complicated that you feel like you have to be a brain surgeon just to carry on a breakfast conversation with them because they ask questions that you don't know how to answer? Well, I have a word of encouragement for you. Simon Peter's mother never saw the greatness of God in the twinkle of that rowdy little boy's eyes. There were no famous men born in Capernaum. Only babies. Hold fast. Wait on God. The same God that has been infinitely patient with us to bring us to this point with, with all that we have left to do is the same God who is also working on our babies and our grandbabies. So cut God a little slack. There is greatness in you that you don't even know about. God is going to bring it out. He is the author and finisher of our faith. There is greatness in our babies. And if, if we just don't grow weary in doing good. Amen? Well, you know, I don't pretend to be raising James and John, the sons of Zebedee. I'm just trying to raise Aaron and Abigail to be the best followers of Jesus they can be. And that's, a, you know, every parent here knows that it's a challenge because you can't make your children choose anything. But I know this, I know that the blessing I'll leave behind me is not going to be a recording of a pitiful message like this. But it will be my children whose heart and compassion and grit and determination will change the world. Why would God trust us with these beautiful, mysterious creatures that at times just drive us absolutely batty? And at the same time, we love them so much, we would absolutely lay our, our lives down for them in a heartbeat. Why would God trust us with these beautiful, 
mysterious creatures. Well, haven't you figured it out? Your children are not really yours. They're just on loan from heaven. And they're not all going to be Peter, but that's okay. They may be Andrew. They're not going to be all, all going to be John, but hey, I'll take James. I just want my daughters to be all that God made them to be. And the same God that's still working on me is still working on them and on you and on yours. And I say in response to that, thank God for the church. For all of the problems in the church. And there are people today that will talk about how awful and how evil and how all the problems the church has. But let me tell you something. For all of the problems in the church that are, that are, that are there, and I'm not going to say there are no problems. Certainly there are because there are human beings in churches. But for all of the problems in the church, I would sure rather raise my kids in the church than in a bar. Wouldn't you? Well, listen, let me pray for you and your family. And we'll be done tonight. Heavenly Father. Thank you for the lives of Peter and Andrew and James and John. And, and Lord, sometimes I, I look at these men and I just feel like such a dwarf in history. God, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. Sometimes I'm so filled with self-doubt and fear. Sometimes I just feel like I'm, I'm, I'm never going to be what you made me to be. But, but God, I thank you. God, God that, that somehow you had a plan for Peter and Andrew and James and, and John. And God, I, I also, I know that you have a plan for me. And you have a plan for my babies. Now, God, I pray you would bless these families. Bless every single mother in this place. Give them courage to believe that the best will, will, be, will be brought forth yet. And Lord, I, I, I pray for every father, every grandfather. Protect their homes. Fill them with the Holy Spirit. And, and I pray, Lord God, that you would fill them with divine hope to believe that the God that was the God of Simon Peter is also the God of the 21st century and the God of their lives and the God of their children. I thank you for all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.